listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. Today, we're going to continue with our series, Eyewitness. We have today and next week left in this series, and then we will, we will conclude this, this series next week. But um, we are exploring the appearances of Christ to the early believers, the early church, during the first 40 days after the, resu- after the resurrection of Christ. It's so important to our faith. I hope you understand. The reason why I have personally wanted to explore this and, and to teach this to you is because I believe that those first 40 days after the resurrection are so important to the foundation of our faith. Without that first 40 days, there's not too much that would separate us from any other religion in the world. We're different because ours isn't really a religion. Ours is reality. Ours is a real, living, breathing Savior, and we can put our trust in that, and that first 40 days is really what solidifies that. The first week, we pieced together this timeline out of the, of the four observations of the, of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and rather than, than look at, at their differences, what we did is we actually put the timeline together, and we discovered that Mary Magdalene was the first to see Jesus alive. We know that he would later appear to Thomas and the, and the other disciples, but his experience with Mary was different than his experience with Thomas, and he gave to each what they needed the most in that moment to help build their faith so that they could have faith to believe. On week two, we looked at how the resurrected Jesus was made known to two disciples on the road to Emmaus and, and how their eyes were open and they realized who he was after he expounded the scriptures to them. He opened up the scriptures to them and then they stopped to eat and they broke bread together. And the Bible says that immediately their eyes were open, they knew who he was and he vanished from their sight. And, and then on week three, we witnessed the resurrected Christ reinstate Peter to the call of ministry. His grace was greater than Peter's sin. Peter had messed up. He had denied Christ three times, and, and, and three times Jesus asked him, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And th- this conversation was so important because he was telling Peter, I've got enough grace to cover every one of your mistakes. Don't you worry about that. And so we got to see that grace. How many of you are thankful for grace that's greater than our sins? Amen? Grace that is greater than our sin. I've never been called to be a witness in an actual courtroom. A few times in in my ministry career, I have been called upon to be a character witness in the judge's chambers, but I've never actually had to sit on a witness stand and and be a witness during a, a court trial. I've never had to do that. I've often wondered how I would respond. You know, I speak publicly for a living. This is what I do. But I don't know, would I get nervous in that situation, you know, worried that I might leave a part of the truth out? I don't know. But, but Mandy and I, we love, we love watching TV courtroom drama. I don't know if anybody else is in the room, in, in the room likes, likes these kind of shows. It, it, it can be like, like, you know, fake drama TV, you know, or it can be documentaries that half the time are fake all on themselves and we don't even know it. But nevertheless, we, we like that kind of stuff. We get glued in. We have been known to binge watch all in one day an entire season of a courtroom drama series, maybe last Monday. I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. But specifically, those moments that stand out are, are where the entire case is turned upside down because of a testimony of a witness. You know some of these TV shows. You know some of the famous movies. Like immediately what comes to your mind. I mean, I don't want to put the thoughts in your head, don't want to, but, but you know, those of you that have ever watched the movie A Few Good Men, you know the scene that I'm going to refer to. 
It's so, it's just, it's, it's a famous, almost infamous scene, if you will, where Jack Nicholson's character yells out, you want answers? And Tom Cruise, he, he says, I want the truth. And then Jack Nicholson says, you can't handle the truth. Some in the room are like, was I the only person that didn't know that? <laughs> yes, you were. And then after he says, you can't handle the truth, he gives this colorful speech and admits that he gave the code red that has been in question the whole time with this trial. Um, I advise you, if you watch that, watch the TV edited version of that movie because it is a very colorful speech, okay? But, but probably one of the greatest moments in a courtroom scene in, in, in movie drama um, is from the award-winning movie, My Cousin Vinny. Yeah. <laughs> Some of you, you're like, that is my favorite movie. There's so many heads nodding right now. So you'll know this scene in My Cousin Vinny where Marissa Tomei's character, she uh, takes the stand to help her incompetent boyfriend lawyer to help him out when, when she gives her expert testimony. Um, and she believes it's a trick question that's being asked by the prosecutor. And so she's just refusing to answer. And the judge orders her to answer the question. And finally, she gives the, an answer to what she believes is a trick question when she says, because Chevy didn't make a 327 in 55, the 327 didn't come out until 62, and it was offered in the Bel Air with a four-barrel four carburetor till 64. However, in 1964, the correct ignition timing would be four degrees before top dead center. Thus securing her place as an expert witness, which would later be beneficial for the case. I don't want to give away you know, any spoilers in here, but, but again, if you choose to watch this movie, I'm asking you, begging you, pleading with you, watch the TV edited version of this movie, okay? I love TV courtroom drama. It's just something about it. I get suckered in. I get glued in on this stuff, and it can be interesting to say the least, but it can be entertaining in real life too. If you've ever been to the court you know it can, be, it can be very entertaining. And sometimes absurd things are said in, in, in the court of law. And so this week I've looked up some of those for you. And listen to these actual statements made by, made by real witnesses being questioned by real lawyers in a real court. Okay? This is not made up. This actually happened. One lawyer asked a witness. He said, can you describe the individual? To which the witness responded, he was about medium height and had a beard. The lawyer then said... Was this a male or a female? And the witness said, unless the circus is in town, I'm going with male. <laughs> Another lawyer called upon a medical examiner as an expert witness. And the lawyer said, doctor, how many of your autopsies have you performed on dead people? <laughs> and the witness said, all of them, the live ones put up too much of a fight. <laughs> it really happened in a courtroom. One lawyer attempted to patronize an opposing witness and said this, said, now, sir, I'm sure you are an intelligent and honest man. And the witness interrupted the lawyer and said, thank you. If I weren't under oath, I'd return the compliment. <laughs> Probably the most disturbing was this one. It was a wife that was accused of assault and battery on her husband. And the lawyer said, what was the first thing your husband said to you that morning? The witness said, he said, where am I, Kathy? The lawyer said, and why did that upset you? The witness said, because my name is Susan. <laughs> In the court of law, 
An eyewitness has the ability to swing the case in the direction of the prosecution or in the direction of the defense. And usually, when called upon, they have corroborating testimony, evidence, information that supports the case of the lawyer who called them to the stand, asked them to be the witness. Today, church, we turn to the first letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians, and, and this is different for this series because we've primarily been focused on the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is where we read of, of the resurrected Christ. Therefore, most of our information comes from there. But, but this first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he wrote 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians dealing with this church. And this was a church that Paul planted on his second missionary journey Probably around 51 AD, he planted this church. And Paul remained there as their pastor for, for what we believe is about 18 months. For about 18 months, Paul stayed there to be their pastor. Now, if you know anything about the ministry of Paul, Paul was often traveling. He was, he was apostolic in the sense that he was starting new works. And, and so the true spirit of, of an apostle is, is, is starting new works for the cause of Christ. And so that's what Paul was called to to, but yet for 18 months, he stays there before he eventually leaves for Ephesus. This church grew quickly. It grew fast. It, 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 it grew large and, and was blessed with spiritual gifts operating in the church. We know this because Paul starts the letter and, and, and he, he really encourages them. Paul was so good at this. Paul knew that there were things that he was going to have to deal with. In the letter, but he would start by complimenting them. And he tells them, he, he brags on them that, that you've got spiritual gifts operating in the church. And, and this is a great thing for your church. Um, however, they were constantly being tempted by, by worldly wisdom and wickedness. The city of Corinth itself was a very wicked city. There was corruption. There was immorality. And, and these new Christians living in Corinth, they were constantly being persuaded by, by this worldly wisdom and by this wickedness. It has been said that the church in Corinth was Paul's most problematic church. I, I tend to look at this a little bit different than some people would. There, there's no doubt this church had some issues. It had some problems. But the truth is, this church was Paul's baby. Paul birthed this church. He started this church. He stayed there for 18 months as their pastor to help this church get, get on its feet. And, and he cared about this church. It meant a lot to him. And, and I can relate to this because it would be like me leaving Destiny Community Church, me leaving DCC, moving on to another ministry opportunity, but later hearing of some issues that needed to be addressed. Paul, Paul loved the church in Corinth too much just to let it go. He loved these people. He loved their souls. He wanted to see them succeed in their walk with Christ. And so Paul couldn't let it go. So Paul writes letters to them. And in this first letter to the church in Corinth, Paul reminds them of what he taught them when he first preached to them. He reminds them of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. And he writes to them and he, he tells them all about that and, and reminds them of, of, of that initial conversation that he had with them. And like a good defender of the faith, he gives a list of witnesses that could corroborate the facts, that could actually say, yes, what he is saying is true. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, 
and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here it is. Here's the gospel. That Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. So he appeared to, to, to Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Listen to this. He's telling us that, that the resurrected Christ was viewed by more than 500 people at one time. He said, most of whom are still alive. He said, so if you need proof, you can go and ask these people. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So some had, had, had died. He said, but then he appeared to James, then to all the disciples. Then he appeared to James, then to all the disciples. Today, we call our next witness to the witness stand, James. In my opinion, church, this is probably the most life-changing witness. This has the ability to change the case. If you're looking for proof, James is the one that is going to convince you. Please allow me to borrow just a few thoughts from a midweek series that I taught on Facebook Live about James. This is James, not Zebedee's son, John's brother, James and John. It's, it's, that James was killed by King Herod in Acts chapter 12. That's not the James I'm talking about. This is not James, the son of Alphaeus, one of the 12 apostles. It's not that, that guy. He's important, but that's, that's not who I'm talking about. This is not James, the father of Judas. It's not that James. No, 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 no. This one is different. The James that, that Paul's referring to here, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. He's the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus is his older brother. And, and it's interesting to note that it, at one time, James was, by all indications, not a believer that his brother was the Son of God. He did not buy in to his brother being the Christ, that he was the Messiah. There is more than enough proof in Scripture to realize that James did not believe that at one time. And why would he? I can't imagine, church, how, how my brothers would react if I would lay claim to being the Christ. I'm the youngest of four boys. Randy, Ronnie, Rodney, and Rocky. You try keeping those straight. I've been called most of my life every other name except the right one. Can you imagine my brothers? If I was to lay claim, if I were to lay claim that I am the Christ, better yet, what if one of them were to tell me that, that he was the Messiah? <laughs> no, not a chance. Besides that one incident of Jesus at the temple at 12 years old where, where Jesus astonished the, the scribes and the elders with his questions and his answers. Besides that one moment of his childhood, there was really no recorded evidence of Jesus as a child showing any Messiah-esque qualities about him. It's just not recorded. We don't have it. And so we're just led to believe that, that Jesus probably was just raised just like a normal child like the rest of his siblings. His brothers. And we know he had at least two sisters. It, it, it's not like he was performing these, these miracles along the way as a child so that, that all of his brothers and sisters and his mom and dad so that they could all see what was happening in his life. Like, as far as we know, he didn't heal one of his brothers 
from, from chicken pox or, or strep throat. Hey, he didn't say, Mom, get out of my way. You know, I, the, the, the chicken soup for the soul is really good for him right now, but, but let me lay my hands on him right now. And, and, and he, we, don't, we don't have any recorded knowledge of that. That didn't happen. It's not like he came home from school one day and the family dog is just laying in the living room and instead of Joseph taking him out and burying him outside somewhere, he's like, no, Jesus is coming home soon. He'll be home from school soon, so let's just leave the dog right there. You remember his dog, right? You, K9 tonight? Well, I think it's Matthew chapter 15 where Jesus calls the Canaanite woman a dog to her face. Yeah, it's a troubling story. There's a reason why, but, but he did. So he has, you know, little pet canine tonight there. there. And it, it's not like he came home from school one day and raised the dog from the dead so the whole family could be happy. It didn't happen. And, and you know, he didn't even multiply the fruity pebbles when the box was empty so that the whole family could eat. It's not what happened. He was just raised as this normal child, just like his brothers and his sisters. And, and as I mentioned to you, church, on Mother's Day, in Matthew chapter 12, we read of this instance where Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, and his family shows up outside. His mom and his brothers show up outside. Listen to this. If you don't remember, Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50, it says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And reaching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of the Father in heaven is my mother and my sister, uh, is my brother and my sister and mother. Do you understand what he was saying in this moment? It was like he was pointing at the people that were there listening that had bought into the fact that he was, he, he was the son of God, that he was the Messiah, that, and, and they were listening to him teach about the kingdom of God. And it's like he said, until they are serving God and doing his will, they're not my family. You are my family. He was, he was really wanting to reassure those that are, are, are with him that you're part of the family of God because you believe. It could be the same instance, but Mark 3.21, Mark lets us in on this. He says, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. This is what his, his brothers said about him. He is out of his mind. Now, we can, we can read between the lines here, and we can probably figure out that they, they want to protect him. This is their older brother. No one wants to see their their older brother, get killed by an angry mob. No one wants to see that. So they probably wanted to protect him. But like most siblings, church, their thoughts and feelings toward Jesus would waver. And if you've ever had a brother or sister, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't have any siblings and you're an only child, then you're just spoiled. For the rest of us in the room that we have brothers and sisters then understand that there are moments when we love them and we will do anything within our ability and our power for them. They matter to us. There are other moments that that same person will drive us so crazy that we can't stand them, and we don't care if they step out in the road in front of a bus. We waver. We go back and forth with these emotions and these feelings. John chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, lets us in really on what's happening. It says, after this, Jesus traveled around Galilee he wanted to stay out of Judea. Now, this is before his death, okay? This is during the ministry of Christ. He wanted to stay out of Judea where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. There's a reason why Jesus doesn't want to go to the region of Judea. 
He knows that they're plotting his death, and it's not time yet. He still has some work to do. He still has some teaching to do. And and, and so he does not want to go there. But listen to to verse 2. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters, and Jesus' brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, where your followers can see your miracles. He doesn't want to go there. But his brothers are now on the other side of that. It's not about protecting him. They're just fed up with him now. And they say, leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. They did not believe in him. This is a sarcastic conversation. If you are so great, Jesus... If you are who you say you are, we're tired of hearing it. Why don't you just go right on to Judea and, and just become famous with all of your healings and all of your teachings? Just, why don't you just go do that? If, if, if you're such a big shot, then Jesus, go get famous. And that animosity that's there, obviously, between he and his brothers, I can't imagine how hard it was to be the brother of Jesus. Have you ever thought about this? The firstborn of the family is Jesus. It's hard enough being the sibling of a flawed, skillful, or sinful, a flawed, sinful, but, but skillful and talented brother. Just ask my brothers. It's, it's hard. But imagine being the sibling to a perfect, sinless, gifted person. He he doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't sin. I mean, yeah, there was that one instance where where Mary and Joseph were traveling, you know, with with their family, their big caravan. They're they're heading out of Jerusalem after they've been there for a celebration. And three days into the journey, they realize that that Jesus is not there. Well, it takes them three days to find him, rather. And, And when they find him, he's at the temple teaching. Now, how many parents in the room that like, you wish that, that that was the worst thing that your kid ever did? Like, you're looking for them, you can't find them, and they've been at the church the whole time. It's even hard to get on to them, right? It's like, what, you, you worried us, but thank God you were at the church. As far as we know, that's the worst thing that Jesus ever did. And even after that, the Bible says that he was subject to his mother and father. So he honored his mother and his father. It's frustrating when that's your older brother. Like he always knows what to say. He does the right things. He gets it right. And, and he honors mom and dad. And it's just hard living in that shadow of the firstborn son with this exceptional, consistent moral character. Who you are in the presence of God is revealed. And if there's anything sinful within you, In the presence of God, it rises to the surface. Can you imagine living in the house and God is your older brother? You're constantly being reminded of all of your failings and your shortcomings. It wasn't easy being the brother of Jesus. Why can't you be more like your brother, James? And think about the memories shared around the dinner table. Man, Though I just wish that the Bible would have included some of this stuff. Because everybody, everybody's birth story failed in comparison to the firstborn, Jesus. Can you imagine when they just started talking about it? Like every Thanksgiving, they're like, oh, let's talk about it. Let's talk, you know, his birthday's coming up soon. Do you remember that night, Joseph? 
And all the other brothers and sisters are rolling their eyes because they know what's coming. There were shepherds and there were angels. Oh, it was a magnificent night. There was this bright star that, that, that settled. It's the brightest we've ever seen. And it settled right above the stable where we were at. It was so special. Such a great night. And it didn't end. Like two years later, these wise men show up and they brought us gifts because they came to worship your brother. Jesus, that's so great. <laughs> but yeah, James, your birth was special too. We were at home for your birth. No manger, no smelly animals. See, we love you too. But that star was pretty cool. It's rough. It's hard being the brother of Jesus. He probably loved him, but he probably didn't like Jesus too much. Maybe that's why Jesus said in Matthew 13 and 57, he said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Maybe Jesus felt the animosity from his, from his family also. Some of that stuff we'll never know. But we do know this for certain. Something changed. Something happened. The opinion that James had of Jesus, it changed. And we're going to get to this, but, but, but by the day of Pentecost, by, by the time the day of Pentecost came, James is now a believer. Because we know in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, it says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers were present. They were there. If they don't believe that he's alive, if they don't believe that he's the Christ, that he's the Messiah, and that he's resurrected, if they don't believe that, they're not there. But Acts tells us that they were what was it that causes his brothers to go from he's out of his mind, he's crazy, he's nuts, to I believe that my brother is who he says that he is? What, what is it? What took place to change the mind of James? And I believe that in our text today, Paul answers this question for us with just a simple sentence. 1 Corinthians 15 and 7, it says, Then he appeared to James. After the resurrection, after he appeared to 500 people at one time, then he appeared to James. If you don't believe it, if you don't buy into it, at the moment you see him resurrected, something changes mentally. They may not have believed in him when he was a kid. Maybe they didn't understand him when he was 12 years old at the temple. They, they worried about him when he was in his mid-30s and they thought that he was out of his mind. But this changes the opinion that James has of Jesus. And church, I tell you that because you need to understand that sometimes, listen, I'm talking to some of you right now, sometimes you have to go through the pain and come out on the other side victorious before they'll ever believe in you. Sometimes you've got to be willing to walk through hell and back before they will ever trust you again. Before they'll ever put their faith in you, you've got to be willing to go through the pain and the hard stuff. Sometimes you might even have to do the time in order for them to ever put their faith and trust in you again. But all you have to do is just be faithful. Just be faithful to the purpose and the plan that God has for your life. It's going to cost you. It's going to hurt. It's, it, 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 it's, it's going to feel like God has forsaken you at times. But you will be faithful to the cross that you have to bear. And after that, in, in, in some in due season, sometime, at some moment, 
They're going to see the resurrected Christ in you if you will allow him to come out through you. And when they see that, it will completely change everything that they think about you. Some of you, you just haven't stayed long enough. You just haven't been faithful long enough to outlive the mistakes that you've made in the past. But I'm telling you, if you'll stay faithful to Christ, at some point they're going to see the resurrected Christ within you and it's going to change their opinion of you. Let, let, let me close with this, and, and, and then we're going to pray here in a moment. The, the greatest testimony of a resurrected Jesus, and, and again, like I said, I think this is the most powerful testimony from an eyewitness that we have. But the most powerful part of this is found in the book of James in your New Testament. The book of James, authored by the half-brother of Jesus. In chapter 1, Verse 1, he says everything we need to know. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. At one time, he thought his brother was crazy. There's no way he is who he says that he is. Now he writes a letter to the Jews. And in the first sentence of this letter, he says, my name is James, and I am a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I, the calling on my life is to serve the calling that was on my brother's life. And he refers to him as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you know the history of James, you'll know that he became great in the church's early history. This man, he, he put it all out there. At one time he didn't believe, but, but after he saw Jesus resurrected, he dove so hard into this, he put his, his life on the line. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul undeniably refers to James as James, the Lord's brother. But in Galatians chapter 2, Paul refers to James along with Cephas, Peter, and also John. He calls these three men and he says they are pillars of the early Christian church. He calls his, the, the brother of Jesus, Paul calls him. He's so great, has become so faithful to the cause of Christ and to spreading the gospel that he is a pillar of the early Christian church. If you know anything about James, you'll know that he became the, the lead pastor of the oldest Christian church in the world, the first church of Jerusalem. He becomes the pastor of that church for over 15 years, he pastors the church in Jerusalem. That's how long I've been pastoring this church. And he stayed faithful to pastoring that church for over 15 years. In Acts chapter 15, it tells us that James, the half-brother of Jesus, who didn't believe at one time, but now was bought all in. Acts 15 tells us that he would moderate the Jerusalem council, that as churches were planted, they would help govern the movement that we know as Christianity. The high calling of God on his life for a skeptic that didn't believe until he saw the resurrected Jesus. Church, don't give up on your doubters. Don't give up on those that don't have faith in you. Don't give up on the people that 
they don't put a lot of stock in what you have to say. All they need to see is the resurrected Jesus in you. It calls James to believe. When they see the resurrected Jesus in you, they'll come around. In preparing this message, my heart became so heavy for some of you. Because it's January 1st, we've been praying hard for our prodigals. The lost sons and daughters, the lost family members. That we're just believing that this is the year that they come home. Weekly, we are praying for the prodigals to come to the faith, come back to God, to feel the love of Christ being poured out. And there's some of you in the room, there's moms and dads in the room, you, you have children, you have grown children that you, you may have lost hope. Don't lose hope on them. For some of you, you've got a spouse, a husband, a wife, you, you've got family members, extended family members, that, that it just feels like they are so far from God, but don't you give up because all they need to see is a resurrected Christ in you. And when, when it finally clicks, they're going to come to the faith, they're going to come to know Jesus Christ. But don't give up. Just be consistent. Every morning you've got to wake up and you've got to be determined that I, I'm just going to put on Jesus today. And today might be the day. And when the, the sun sets on that day and they still don't know Christ, you wake up the next day and you put the resurrected Christ on once again and you live a consistent life because I'm telling you the fruit of your life is what's going to convince them to come to know the, uh, Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You cannot discount that. All of the Jameses in your world, they're going to come back. They're going to put their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. To learn more about DCC, including our service times and location, visit us at destinycommunitychurch.org.